This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchor Light. Artist studios, exhibition space, and more. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. At the art museum where I worked as a curator for over 13 years, I was in charge of many different projects, big and small. I curated blockbuster exhibitions about Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo. I co-wrote exhibition catalogs for artists having their first solo exhibitions in the U.S. I visited the studios of countless local artists. I answered a ton of emails. But one of my favorite projects was a rather small one, a tiny one-room gallery dedicated to Black Mountain College, a little enclave in western North Carolina that was one of the most exciting and experimental places in mid-century America, a place responsible for transforming the lives and careers of many artists, and not just the students who attended the college, but the professors who were involved there too, both on short-term and long-term stays. Being able to rotate out exhibitions about this special place and this singular moment was a treat, especially because it is a beautiful but sometimes overlooked part of my state's history. I loved this gallery. And more than that, I loved being able to share the lives and the works of people who were involved in it. For most historians of Black Mountain, there is no one more closely linked to the college than Joseph Albers. Rightly or wrongly, Albers gets all the attention when it turns out that his partner, his wife, Annie, was also integral to the college's success and was an equally fascinating artist in her own right. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, photographs, and more are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. Art Curious Season 13 is all about modern love. And today is the first of two episodes featuring a brief jaunt over to Black Mountain, North Carolina, to highlight a powerful artist couple who taught at this landmark place in a singular moment in history. Today is all about Annie and Joseph Albers. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I am Jennifer Dassel. The story of Annie and Joseph Albers is a long one. Joseph lived until age 88 and Annie until age 95. But their lives and careers are made easier to document due to the fact that there are several key moments, including some moments beyond their control, like war, that segment their lives into digestible little parts. Not that this episode is going to be a full biography of either artist, because there's just too much good stuff to share. But at least this will whet your appetite, perhaps. And my hope is that you seek out further details about both of these amazing artists. Let's begin with the firstborn of our two artsy babies. 
Joseph Albers was born on March 19, 1888, in Bottrop, which is about an hour's drive north from the city of Cologne in Germany. Joseph had a childhood marked by an exposure not to art necessarily, but to making. His working-class parents were blacksmiths on his mother's side, and his father was a carpenter and house painter who also occasionally performed handyman jobs. Early on, Joseph learned alongside his father, slowly picking up various trades like plumbing and electrical work, and even glazing or glass fitting. Not that he intended to follow in his dear dad's footsteps necessarily. He actually wanted to be a teacher, and for about five years in his early 20s, he taught elementary school in his hometown. But he left that career path in 1913 because, as we always say, the arts came a-calling. He enrolled at the Royal School of Art in Berlin and at the School of Arts and Crafts in Essen, and he studied everything from drawing to printmaking and, fascinatingly, stained glass making. But what really changed Joseph Albers' life was his enrollment at the age of 32 in an art school in Weimar, Germany in 1920, a little school that focused on the combining of the art and practical craft of design. This was the Stadlisch Bauhaus, known simply today to many of us as Bauhaus. Joseph Albers wasn't the only person to attend this fascinating design school because Annalisa Elsa Frieda Fleischmann was there, too. The woman who would eventually become known as Annie Albers was born in Berlin on June 12, 1899, 11 years after her future husband. And Annie's background was pretty different from Joseph's. Her family was considerably wealthy on two fronts. Her father had built a successful furniture-making business, and her mother came from a family of publishing magnates. So right away, Annie didn't have to worry about supporting herself or making a living. Instead, she was expected to marry well, especially marrying a man from an equally, quote-unquote, substantial financial background. But Annie didn't necessarily jibe with that. She grew up with an interest in art, was frequently seen painting during her childhood and teen years, and she hoped to pursue instruction in the fine arts even after a meeting with the modern artist Oskar Kokoschka briefly derailed her interests when he looked at one of her paintings and sneered, why do you paint? Eventually, though, Annie did keep painting, and most importantly, she cajoled her father into allowing her to attend art school. But at the beginning, that art school education didn't really go well. She registered at the School of Applied Arts in Hamburg, but the school was strict, a little bit harsh, and living conditions were poor. A particular contrast, by the way, to her comfortable upbringing. Most importantly, though, was the school's instruction, which was dry, boring, lifeless. And Annie knew that she wanted something more, something different and fresh and experimental. Her life then changed when she stumbled upon a pamphlet advertising the programs of an art school in Weimar. And though she wasn't admitted upon first application, she would begin the next portion of her life on April 21, 1922, when she did enter the Bauhaus for the first time. I've mentioned the Bauhaus twice now, but haven't yet given you a background to the school. But I hope you can tell by the narrative thus far that this was an important place. Because it was. So here's a little background. The Bauhaus was formed in 1919 by the influential German architect 
Walter Gropius with this kind of radical goal, which was to bring art and creativity back into the realm of everyday life, where every and any endeavor, whether it be painting, or craft, applied arts, design, sculpture, or more, would all be given the same weight and the same importance in society. In his 1919 Proclamation of the Bauhaus, Gropius wrote, quote, Architects, sculptors, painters, we must all return to the crafts. For art is not a profession. There is no essential difference between the artist and the craftsman. The artist is an exalted craftsman. In rare moments of inspiration transcending the consciousness of his will, the grace of heaven may cause his work to blossom into art. But proficiency in a craft is essential to every artist. Therein lies the prime source of creative imagination. Let us then build a new guild of craftsmen without the class distinctions that raise an arrogance barrier toward craftsmen and artists. Together, let us desire, conceive, and create the new structure of the future, which will embrace architecture and sculpture and painting in one unity, and which will one day rise toward heaven from the hands of a million workers, like the crystal symbol of a new faith. Okay, so that was a little bit long. But my intention is to show you that Gropius's proclamation was truly a manifesto, a call to action, one with a goal of changing the world, not just how art itself would be conceived and what could be defined as art, but also with hopes of altering the student-teacher relationship. It was a call for creativity to be more collaborative, more about community and the transmission of ideas. So keep this in mind because we'll be coming back to this structure later on in this episode. Joseph Albers entered the Bauhaus in 1920 with the intention of pursuing study in stained glass, which was a medium he chose because of that perfect craft-slash-design-slash-art combination that was so important in Bauhaus rhetoric. But it wasn't his only interest, nor his singular focus. After his introductory courses, he also learned to design furniture, to create collages, and take photographs. But his work with glass was so good that by 1922, only a couple of years into his study, he was appointed a junior master and head of the Bauhaus's glass workshop. He was the first student to become an instructor at the school. That was Annie Fleischmann's first year at the Bauhaus, and it was during that period that Annie did meet her future husband, someone whom she later described as a, quote, lean, half-starved, aesthetic-looking Westphalian with irresistible blonde bangs. I really love how much she loved those bangs. That's really cute. But the Bauhaus itself wasn't making as positive an impression upon her as Joseph himself did. Annie struggled to find direction. All the students at the Bauhaus were required to choose one main workshop, so one focus. But though Annie originally wanted to study painting, and soon after, wanted to take glasswork with Joseph, she found herself barred from entry. Grudgingly, she then found herself persuaded to enroll in a textile workshop. This was truly antithetical to the Bauhaus and to Gropius's initial vision of the school, where he claimed that there would be, quote, no difference between the beautiful and the strong sex. And yet there were differences, and Annie found herself sequestered in an all-female workshop, relegated to textiles, which is long considered to be a feminine medium. 
and I've got feminine here in air quotes, and one that was thus deemed of lesser import. Still, she made the best with what she had, and she created abstract wall hangings and textile-inspired works on paper, often using disparate elements like horsehair and metallic thread to add texture and interest to her more traditional yarns. Eventually, Annie found her way, and she grew to enjoy her work, later noting, quote, Gradually, threads caught my imagination. And Joseph and Annie caught each other's eyes, too. They made it official, and those crazy kids got married in 1925, settling in Dassau at the Bauhaus's new location. The Alberses kick it around Dessau for a while, but they don't stay in Germany forever. Their big move across the pond is coming up next. Stick with us over this quick ad break, and hey, do you want to listen to this show ad-free? Join me over at Patreon today for $4 a month, and you will be all set. Check it out, patreon.com artcurious. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. A few years ago, I began composting in my backyard. But has it been easy? Ugh, I wish. My family is constantly fretting about the composition of green waste versus brown matter. I wonder if I'm throwing in too many coffee grounds or too many banana peels, not enough cardboard. In short, I love composting, but doing it was actually way more complicated than I had expected. But then I got a Lomi. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps into dirt in under four hours. With the push of a button, my food scraps, even those mystery containers of takeout that are languishing in the back of my fridge, are all gone, all done, without mess, smell, and when it runs, it's quieter than my dishwasher, and it feels good too. Since I got my Lomi, I throw out way less garbage, and that means I'm not going to send things to landfills that produce extra methane. Instead, I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed back to my plants. I have way less garbage, I'm minimizing my carbon footprint personally, and I'm helping to grow my garden with less effort, confusion, and mess. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com artcurious and use the promo code artcurious to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to L-O-M-I dot com slash artcurious and use promo code artcurious at checkout. Food waste is gross. Let Lomi save you a cold trip out to the garbage can. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to Art Curious. 
Though the newly minted Annie Albers never officially collaborated with her husband, you can still see some overlap in one another's works of art, a little gentle visual reminder of their connection. Annie's weavings were inspired more by painting than anything else, combining elements gleaned from people like Vasily Kandinsky and Paul Clay and infused with lovely color. Joseph, meanwhile, formed bright stained glass compositions with thick, grid-like frets reminiscent of the warp and weft of textiles. Both together and apart, these artists poured over the same concepts of color, abstraction, verticality, and geometry. But all wasn't champagne and roses. The Bauhaus, due to a number of factors, began experiencing a number of difficulties, mostly stemming from political pressures. The school shifted locations, first, as I mentioned, from Weimar to Dessau, and then to Berlin, all while shifting its leadership, academic course offerings, instructors, and other options. Like many a utopia, it began fracturing under the influence of varying ideals and warring visions. And things only got worse. As the 1920s moved into the 1930s and Germany grew more and more totalitarian in its leadership, the Bauhaus was seen as a problem a school of intellectual thought, hell-bent on breaking the rules rather than following them. After Hitler was named chancellor in 1933, the Nazis pressured the Bauhaus to fall in line with party beliefs, declaring the school to be one of those purveyors of degenerate ideas, and thus, of course, degenerate works of art. And so the school needed to be tweaked, you could say. But instead of kowtowing to the party's demands, Bauhaus officials and instructors voted to shut down the school entirely. And Joseph Albers was one of those who voted for the shutdown. But there was a glimmer of hope on the horizon. That year, 1933, the Alberses opted to emigrate to the United States, which was an especially good idea since Annie was Jewish. And a good gig was soon offered to them. The architect Philip Johnson recommended the couple to teach at a brand new liberal arts college in the mountains of beautiful North Carolina. This small college ended up being Annie and Joseph's home for nearly two decades. And that home was Black Mountain College. It very easily could not have worked. When architect Philip Johnson, who was then serving as curator at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, recommended Joseph as an art teacher to John A. Rice, who was Black Mountain's founder, he informed Rice of one little caveat. Joseph spoke no English. And yet, Rice gave him the job anyway. And by the time the Alberses arrived in North Carolina in November 1933, Joseph knew just enough English to say, and I quote, to make open the eyes which was his response to the question of his ambitions as an instructor of the arts. We can't underestimate just how different Black Mountain was in comparison to most colleges and universities at this point. Its core principles were rather egalitarian, with its governance being managed by all involved from top to bottom. The college was both owned and operated by its faculty, and everyone, including all the students, managed its operations. Everything from kitchen duty to landscaping and maintenance, janitorial work and building projects. 
Because just like at the Bauhaus, art was considered a hands-on endeavor, and art was considered central to learning. And by the way, I want to make clear that art here didn't just mean the visual arts. It essentially meant anything creative. Music, dance, poetry, performance, it was all connected. And those at Black Mountain were thus intimately connected to their college and to each other. This was all helped considerably by its somewhat remote location, about 20 minutes east of Asheville by car today. The folks at Black Mountain then grew tight. And this one-of-a-kind environment, which was less luxury and more communal, both attracted top talent and produced the same in its students. The awesome Black Mountain College Museum and Art Center has a partial list of those involved in BMC over on their website, but I am going to read you a brief selection here. Ready? Okay, let's go. Beside Joseph and Annie, we have Willem and Elaine de Kooning, Robert Rauschenberg, Merce Cunningham, John Cage, Cy Twombly, Kenneth Noland, Susan Vile, Vera B. Williams, Ben Shane, Ruth Asawa, who was one of my favorites, by the way, Franz Klein, Arthur Penn, Buckminster Fuller, and, as a rather direct hint for our next episode, the amazing Jacob Lawrence. One of the stories I love about Joseph's early years at the college is in regards to his teaching style. What Philip Johnson had originally called a caveat, i.e. his lack of English, actually turned out to be a bright spot. Because of his limited vocabulary, Joseph couldn't really lecture to his students, so instead he drew them near, with the students often circling around him so that he could show them, actually show them, with his hands, whatever he was talking about. It was all very gestural, and there are some amazing photos of Joseph, which I have linked on my website, showing him waving his arms, standing on chairs, tracing circles in the air with his finger, and more, while his students imitate him. It is a rather endearing way to teach, to be sure. Annie, too, had to find her own path at Black Mountain College. Hired as an assistant professor, she sometimes had to make do with figuring out creative solutions to problems. Like when, in the early 1940s, a classroom change meant that her looms for her weaving classes weren't yet set up and ready to go. So instead of worrying about it, Annie sent her students outside to source their own weaving materials from nature. Talk about hands-on learning. This direct connection to nature was really key for Annie, not only as an instructor, but as an artist, too. While living at Black Mountain College, she and Joseph would often road trip down to Mexico over holiday breaks, a journey that would usually take about a week one way by car. Both of the Alberses were fascinated by the modernity of Mexico, especially Mexico City. And they rubbed elbows with the likes of Diego Rivera, furniture designer Clara Porset, and the Guatemalan abstract artist Carlos Merida. But for Annie, what was equally fascinating was the ongoing connection with Mexico's ancient roots, how its present reflected its past. She began collecting pre-Columbian art and artifacts and used them as inspiration for a new series of pictorial weavings beginning in the mid-1930s. Take as an example her 1936 work, Ancient Writing, which is a piece that is now in the Smithsonian's collection. A bold, almost graphic textile, this piece was one of the first that Annie created based on the concept that, in earlier centuries, 
There was no written mode of communication in some places, like, for example, Peru, and that traditional textiles were frequently made for communication purposes. Seeing a direct link to the written word as we know it in Annie's works isn't really easy, but I think that's part of the point. The mystery of it, its unknowability, really reflected how it means to be a modern viewer trying to grapple with an ancient code. As Annie wrote in 1936, quote, Wonderful ancient art, frequently almost unknown, hardly excavated even when it is known. Understanding wasn't always the end goal, and it shouldn't necessarily be the end goal for us when looking at Annie Albers' works, either. It's probably clear to you by now that the Alberses didn't really like to remain stagnant in their respective careers, and that this period at Black Mountain was one of the most interesting and bustling for both of them. There's more on that coming up next, right after this break. Come right back. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Art Curious. Both Annie and Joseph Albers were busy at Black Mountain. And not just with their curricula, but with their own projects. The college's feeling of experimentation obviously rubbed off not only on their students, but on them too. Annie, as we know, tried to fuse a sense of modernity into a medium frequently more associated with tradition and worked to bridge a gap between the so-called fine arts and crafts like textile work. Joseph, for his part, became ever more obsessed with trying new printmaking techniques and focusing on abstraction and color theory, and he began writing about both the techniques of making art and about art education and his experience therein. In fact, both of the Alberses were writers, especially in the latter half of their respective careers. Annie completed numerous essays on art and textiles and published two books, On Designing in 1959 and On Weaving in 1965. Joseph's own book, the highly influential 1963 tome, Interaction of Color, was his, quote, record of an experimental way of studying color and teaching color. And it combined those dual interests in art making and education. As one might expect from a man who spent his years teaching art, this book was notable not only for its color theory, but for its constructive suggestions for exercises and putting those theories actually into practice. In teaching about color, Joseph wasn't just preaching an abstract concept. He had been living it for years, 
by the time Interaction of Color was published in the 1960s. In 1950, the artist had begun his most well-known series, called Homage to the Square, a series that would occupy his professional existence for the last 25 years of his life. And if you know Joseph Albers, you know these works. Because he created over 1,000 of them, and they all generally follow a same theme, which is three or four superimposed squares weighted more heavily on the bottom edges so that the squares aren't aligned with the center of a composition. The colors, though, they change. Sometimes they are vastly different, but often there is a more subtle variation in the palette. Take his 1959 work, Homage to the Square, Apparition, now at the Guggenheim, as an example. Created with oil paint, the work features four squares in yellow, gray, blue, and green. And as you might expect from the title of his book, it was an experiment in the interaction of color. How do these colors, when placed atop one another, change the optics of the scene? How do they change our ability as viewers to perceive what is right in front of us? How can color affect our understanding of space and of light and even of the simple form of the square itself? And speaking of simplicity, that is the beauty of Albers's Homage to the Square series, in that these works aren't simple at all. The more you look at them, the more your eyes and your brain attempt to resolve what feels kind of like a sense of movement, an illusion of visual planes advancing and receding. Space seems to shift, all while actually remaining perfectly still. And it is a marvel. As Albers wrote of this effect, quote, choice of the colors used as well as their order is aimed at an interaction influencing and changing each other forth and back. Thus, character and feeling alter from painting to painting without additional handwriting or so-called texture. Though the underlying symmetrical and quasi-concentric order of squares remains the same in all paintings in proportion and placement, these same squares group or single themselves, connect and separate in many different ways. Annie and Joseph Albers ended up leaving Black Mountain College after 16 years when Joseph accepted a position as chairman for the Department of Design at Yale University. By that point, both Joseph and Annie were not only acclaimed instructors, but of course also acclaimed artists. Annie enjoyed her first solo retrospective exhibition in 1949 at the Museum of Modern Art, which, by the way, was also the first show ever dedicated to a textile artist at that particular institution. But you didn't have to be just in New York to enjoy the show, because the exhibition traveled to over 25 museums throughout the United States and Canada for over two years, introducing thousands of museum-goers to her unique works that dissolved the borders between art and craft. The following year, she was commissioned to design the draperies for the Rockefeller Guest House in New York, which was another example of her reach and the interest in her work at the highest level of the moneyed artsy class. And museum interest didn't stop there either. In the mid-1960s, the Jewish Museum commissioned her to produce a tapestry to honor the victims of the Holocaust. Completed in a meditative combination of gray, beige, and silver threads, the final work, titled Six Prayers, is a true highlight of Annie's oeuvre. 
It is a monumental piece worthy of its intended purpose. And in the meantime, she still never stopped trying new things, experimenting with multiple printmaking techniques from the 1960s onwards, from lithography and embossing to silk screens and photo offset printing. And Joseph did too. Between his chairmanship duties at Yale, he continued to write about art theory, technique, and education. And in 1971, at the age of 83, he enjoyed another first. He became the first living artist to have a solo retrospective at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, which is a museum not typically known for showcasing contemporary artists. So a pretty big deal. And even up to his final days, Joseph was actively pursuing new aims in his homage to the Square series. He died at age 88 on March 25, 1976, leaving Annie, age 77, behind. She would outlive him by nearly 20 years, and when she died on May 4, 1994, she was 94 years old. It's sometimes strange for folks to hear that Annie and Joseph Albers, who were married for over 50 years, who taught in a lot of the same locations and were fascinated by so many of the same concepts, to learn that they never worked together in a collaborative way. But like Dorothea Tanning and Max Ernst from our last episode, they didn't necessarily have to. Both artists were strong enough in their respect for their own work and for that of their partners that butting themselves together didn't feel necessary. But just because they didn't create a physical work of art together doesn't mean that their careers weren't affected by their relationship to one another. In fact, the beautiful thing is that the opposite was true. The Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation, which was established to perpetuate the couple's archives, principles, and works of art, really put it best when they noted, quote, They fostered one another's creativity and shared their profound conviction that art was central to human existence and that morality and creativity were aligned. So who could ask for more in a professional and personal partnership than that right there, an aligning of creativity, of love, of mutual respect. Next time on Art Curious, we are going to focus on another pair of artists who enjoyed a spate of time in the gorgeous mountain surrounds of Black Mountain College, albeit for a much shorter time. But their story is fascinating too. And Joseph Albers, by the way, will be back for that one. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Huge thanks to Holly Sauer for her excellent writing and research help for this episode. And as always, I had way too much great research to use in putting together this episode. So head over to YouTube where I will be posting some exclusive content about the Alberses that I didn't get to use today. Check it out there. The Art Curious theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. And our podcast is co-produced by Kabunki. Podcasts create a video and more. Subscribe to their show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at subgenrepodcast.com. Kabuki, leave your mark. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchor Light. 
Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorlightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means you can donate tax-free to Art Curious to show your support, and you can join us at Patreon for ad-free content for the price of a cup of coffee. Check back with us soon as we explore some of the most unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful lovers in modern art of art history.